the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business podcast. I'm Laura Slattery and on the show this week we'll be discussing how the revenue is giving the tax affairs of medical consultants a full body scan and we'll be giving the gender pay gap in Ireland a thorough examination. Later I'll be talking to Irish Times work expert Charlie Taylor about what David Cameron is doing or says he's doing to tackle pay inequality between men and women in the UK and whether the Irish government should be doing the same. But first... The latest tax defaulters list published this week includes five medical consultants who made settlements as part of the Revenue Commissioner's investigation into the profession. Irish Times health correspondent Paul Cullen is here. Paul, this takes the number of consultants who have made settlements to 17. Are more to come? Yes, uh, it's expected that uh, as this uh, programme of compliance that the Revenue Commissioners is carrying out is completed, that more uh, consultants' names will appear in the regular uh, tax defaulter lists over the next few years. So, I mean, how many consultants are they investigating? Do we know? Well, we're told that it could be as up as high as 500 uh, medics of, of different sorts, um, because let's say the uh, current list includes one GP, several uh, medical consultants, and uh, and there are also no, uh, non-medics such as dentists as well who've co- come into uh, the examination of the revenue commissioners. Um, and so far, we understand that revenue have collected t- uh, tax and penalties of amounting to 30 million uh, from this programme. So it's quite considerable. So these are significant sums and I believe the one of the settlements yesterday was more than a million, I think, wasn't That's it? That's right. Uh, the largest, I think, was uh, one and a half million uh, and uh, the, while the others were smaller, um, they were six-figure sums. So over the years, we've become used to seeing numerous farmers, hoteliers, retailers and others on the tax defaulters list. Um, is the case with the consultants the same as those or, or were they just not paying their taxes or were they involved in particular avoidance schemes? No, I think they're, they're probably uh, somewhat different. I think you're, you're, you're obviously talking here about high net worth individuals um, and uh, clearly it seems that they uh, sought professional advice what to do with their income, what to do with their money and the advice that they received um, it seems was to set up uh, so-called controlled companies um, sometimes outside the jurisdiction and it was the uh, relationship between the people and their companies that came under the spotlight of the revenue commissioners. The revenue commissioners weren't happy with a number of aspects of the operation of these control companies, and effectively, they formed the notion that they were not—they were not real commercial entities at all. Okay, so that they that, that they were really designed purely for tax purposes. Yes, um, the revenue uh, found a number of features that they were unhappy with. For example, the disposal of goodwill by the consultants to their companies. Uh, issues around uh, the claiming of expenses, personal expenses against professional income, uh, issues around the lack of documentation to support large expenses claimed as tax deductions, and also uh, deductions claimed um, in relation to salaries and pensions um, for spouses and children. So there was a, a quite a, a number of I- different issues which arose uh, and which led to uh, this quite um, comprehensive um, uh, 
uh, scan of the profession by by the revenue, um, as we can see in the regular uh, tax defaulter lists. So, and it was a way to minimise income tax, capital gains tax, other other uh, liabilities. Clearly, it was a way of reducing your tax payment. The question uh, is. Um, the revenue clearly considered as tax evasion. Mm -hmm. uh, those uh, from within the profession, my understanding is that there is some sense of grievance uh, about what has happened and about the level of advice that was provided, uh, with the understanding being among many doctors that what they were doing was tax avoidance, entirely legal tax avoidance. Um, and obviously, uh, there's also unhappiness that uh, some of their names have appeared in public in the tax defaulters list. Yes, because, I mean, tax avoidance, that term we typically use it to refer to legal um, ways of minimising or reducing tax, whereas tax evasion is the illegal kind. Um, so they feel like what they were doing was tax planning, sensible tax planning, uh, and not illegal tax evasion. Yes, that's the feeling that, I, that I'm hearing back. Um, it obviously throws the spotlight on the kind of advice that is being given by tax advisors, um, and certainly there seemed to be something of a template uh, going around uh, in terms of company formation and uh, um, the operation of uh, expenses and uh, claiming expenses and deductions and so on um, and that seems to have heard I presume it's not an exact science um, um, but the problem is when it goes wrong it goes seriously wrong it blows up in your face and very publicly so so is there a sense of embarrassment in the profession about this or as you said a sense of grievance uh, I think there's some sense of grievance um, uh, so it's people could say, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, and uh, obviously people's uh, tax affairs are, are, are rightly uh, private matters. Um, but uh, there's some sense of uh, foreboding, too, that this um, process may continue um, over the next uh, while. And of course, um, it's doing so in term, in, in, to a background of um, large, wide-scale pay unhappiness within the sector. Um, as we know there's been swinging cuts in the health sector over the last few years. Um, a 30% pay cut was imposed on new consultants some years ago. That's been reversed uh, to some extent. And doctors um, are voting with their feet um, at the moment and going to work in other countries uh, in the English-speaking world and elsewhere. Um, so uh, this doesn't sit particularly well with the um, uh, the case being made by the profession for, for improved pay uh, in the public service and the health service here in Ireland. Okay, I mean, you can see how it would add to their unhappiness, but I suppose people might say it's two separate issues as well, really. You still have to pay your, your legal uh, tax duty. Yes, well, I mean, it, it, the optic, uh, what I'm trying to say is that the optics aren't uh, perfect in terms of uh, we have a budget coming up and um, there are different government departments, including health, which are looking for more money. Uh, and uh, first and foremost, what we're hearing is a clamour within the health service for pay restitution and for pay increases uh, to keep staff um, uh, and to r recruit staff and to have staff come back to work in Ireland. Um, but if it's happening at the same time that large tax settlements are being made by prominent members of the profession, that doesn't uh, sit very well in the, in the public view uh, and might un undermine the case uh, that's being made for uh, improved pay and conditions within the health service. OK. OK. Thanks very much, Paul. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. 
Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees, and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Now, UK Prime Minister David Cameron wants to compel large companies to publish the difference between what they pay men and what they pay women in a bid to help close the gender pay gap. Will these gender pay audits work? And what would happen if they were introduced here? Charlie Taylor, who writes about the workplace in the Irish Times every Friday, joins me now. Charlie, is Cameron onto something here? Love as I am to find myself agreeing with David Cameron, um, it seems as though he's kind of hit a nerve, really, with basically the suggestion is that he, there's going to be legislation introduced that would force Britain's biggest companies to make a move and start coming clean on what they pay men and women. You know, it's interesting because it comes, it coincides with a new survey that was published recently uh, with 72,000 managers in the UK. The study, which was published by the Chartered Manage- Management Institute, found that uh, women of bosses earn 22% less than their male counterparts. That's the equivalent of working one hour, one hour hour and 40 minutes free every day and thus works out about 57 working days a a year. Um, You know, and what Cameron wants to do, he's pretty much saying, you know, any organisation with between 250 and 999 staff should should say what their staff earn. Now, there's been mixed reaction to this so far, as you can expect. Some of the lobby groups, things like the British Chamber, have said, mm, we don't know, there's going to be a lot more expenses involved in this. It's also uh, confidential information. But it's interesting, Deloitte UK came out and said they actually announced what they pay. The gender gap in their organisation, they said it stood at 17.4%, which is around 1.7% below the UK average. And what their head, uh, David which Brawl said was that while there was a, a pay gap there, it wasn't as clean cut as just like men and women not getting paid the same at the same for the same job that they do, but more that it represented that there's not enough senior women in the organisation, so therefore it, there's the disparity showing there. So it's quite a positive move, really, to see companies like Deloitte voluntarily offering up this information and saying, okay, well maybe we've got a problem. This is how we want to tackle it going forward. There is a big difference though, is there not, between a company doing something voluntarily and uh, being forced to do it by a government? Um, you know, when, when there's a definite discrimination, it's, it's much easier to be able to, to take action on. But, you know, often discrimination can be more discreet. It depends on the different types of roles that people have as well. Okay, because women do tend to sometimes uh, congregate in particular professions and men the same in other professions. And it comes down to the question of which do we value? Yeah, very much so. I mean, there's there's still kind of quite clear boundaries in some ways. You know, things have improved, obviously, over the years. But, you know, there still seems to be men go off in one direction, men and women in another in, in some instances. You know, if you look at something like technology, which, you know, you would think was more open to the genders being, the, the differences being blurred there, women still tend to 
congregate in what are called the softer roles, the things like HR and marketing rather than the hardcore engineering, software development, etc. So what is the gender pay gap in Ireland at the moment? Well, you know, in most countries, women own uh, between uh, earn between 60 to 70 percent of what men do. And according to recent figures published by Eurostat, in Ireland, Irish women typically earn 14.4 percent less than men. Now, according to their figures, uh, in 2012, women were earning uh, a six less per hour than men, which was actually up from 12.6 percent in 2008. But if you add in pensions and the difference that that makes, that rises to a whopping 35% difference. Okay. And why do you think it is that, that this, this sort of gap is sort of stubbornly continues? Yeah, well, there's, there's, you know, there's so many factors. Obviously, we've already touched on the fact that, you know, men and women can tend to go off into different, uh, roles. Work, different roles, you know, but there's also kind of things like women may often choose to work part time, which is linked to parental issues, you know, of childcare, picking up children from creches and schools, etc. It tends to be women that tend to take the lead in that kind of role, or it's left to them. Um, you know, there's also kind of things like the, the, the effects of career breaks. If you take a couple of years out on maternity leave to, to raise your children, how will that impact on you? And there's, all, there's also been mention of things like networking opportunities that men tend to congregate around the golfing out, outings, etc., that women can feel excluded from. There's a little bit of chicken and egg with this, isn't there, that women um, sort of end up in these jobs that are, are low paid but I mean you could argue the other way around that the jobs are low paid because they're the ones that women like doing it, it's it's sometimes hard to differentiate which has happened first mm, Absolutely yeah you know and, and it always depends as well on how on what on what roles we value as well you know with someone working in retail uh less important than someone working in an office you know that's obviously <laughs> up up for debate you know but i mean uh, you know the rates of pay obviously have an impact there and women tend have tended to go you know tend to be overrepresented in areas like sort of clerical work retail etc so what are the business benefits to paying men and women the same yeah i mean it's, i suppose it's hard to measure you know in uh, quantitatively but you, you know you could look at it and things like you know some of the benefits that they say is just generally more women working in the economy is, is good for the economy just at wholesale you know but also for particular companies there's benefits such as it's important in terms of re retention and recruitment and also in terms of brand you know everything uh, you know they say now that brand is everything so to be able to say that you have a really diverse workforce in which uh, women can proceed and move up the ladder is is extremely good PR. Now, a note on the uh, IBEC website, there's a gender pay audit tool for employers who are members of that organisation uh, to use. But you don't hear it mentioned that much in political circles, gender pay audits. Is, but is there anything else they might be doing to look at the issue of yeah, gender Yeah, I mean, pay? There, there, there are plenty of things. And, you know, I mean, one of the key issues here is that, as you mentioned, that there's very little talk about this in Ireland. I mean, at the, in the UK, it's becoming a big issue where, where there's, you know, it looks as though there's action going to be taken on this. But, you know, I mean, it's interesting the run-up to the budget and to the election. Will, will this become something that comes onto the agenda? You might kind of think, you know, a smart kind of uh, politician that wants to kind of make 
make a name for himself would, or, or herself, obviously, should uh, possibly consider, you know, looking at this uh, issue. You know, I mean, uh, the National Women's Council of Ireland is definitely being calling on both uh, politicians and employers to try to do more to close the gap. And it's urged action on a number of fronts, including greater access to good quality childcare, increasing the minimum wage because women are in the, you know, are overrepresented in some of the lower paid jobs and, uh, you know, a concerted effort to promote more, more women into decision-making roles. OK, so we've talked about politicians, but what else can companies do themselves to close the gender pay gap, should they want to? Um, well, the, the Chartered Management Institute, which, which were the organisation behind the UK study that was recently published, you know, they have a number of recommendations that companies can start to introduce that will make a difference. You know, one of that is just to set targets. You know, and say it's vital that there are clear targets for changes across the business that you can, you know, monitor progress and drive change. You know, uh, review starting salaries. You know, they say that men often negotiate higher starting salaries, so you can make sure that right at the start of the recruitment process, there's not a gender gap uh, problem being created. Another one is uh, start reporting. Show your commitment to fairness for all employees by publishing the gender pay uh, data before the legislation comes into effect, as, as it is in the UK. And, you know, lastly, they say, you know, uh, change outdated culture. So the working environment has to be more inclusive. So that is things that, you know, people have been calling for, which is flexible working, greater support for parents and carers, some good, proper mentoring, you know, and all of these things will go on to have an impact. And I have to say, I really enjoy hearing this list of things that employers can do, because I think sometimes the tone of the conversation is, what can women themselves do? Sometimes you get these advice pieces that say, go in and negotiate a higher salary, you know, lean in. Um, but, but there is discrimination at work sometimes, and it's up to employers, surely, to make sure, first of all, they're on the right side of the law, and second of all, that they're doing the best for their business. Sure, absolutely. I mean, as, as we already touched on, it's good PR, and it makes sense that in terms of recruitment and retention to be taking the positive steps and making the moves themselves rather than sitting there and waiting for women to come to them and say, we, you know, and hopefully men as well, to say, we need change here. OK, I mean, not to give David Cameron too much credit, um, I think it w would have been Harriet Harman and the Labour Party who pushed this issue for years and got precisely nowhere. Nobody listened to her, perhaps because she was a woman. And now that David Cameron is talking better, we're all taking it a bit more seriously. So we have come along a long way on this issue. And there, there's probably a bit more of a way to go, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we're, you know, the, the National Women's Council, were, when they were t discussing, you know, what they're trying to get pushed, I mean, you know, they, they're pushing things. One of the things that looks as though there might be some movement is something like childcare costs, which might seem sort of a minor issue. But obviously, you know, if you're a parent, and particularly if you're a woman and taking the lead in this, in, in minding the children and being responsible for that, you know, it's something like childcare costs would could make a vital difference to your, your being able to take part in the workplace. Thanks, Charlie. And that's it for this edition of the Irish Times Inside Business podcast with me, Laura Slattery. Sound engineering today was by JJ Vernon and this podcast was produced by Sinead O'Shea. You can find all our business stories, interviews and analysis on irishtimes.com and on the Irish Times apps. Until next week, goodbye.